0: Guy Hills is the embodiment of positivity and good vibes. I'm not kidding. I was re-listening to our discussion before I started recording this intro, and I was shocked at the timing. Look, I think we all know these are some strange times happening right now, and just hearing Guy's voice and outlook warmed my heart. It did. When you hear this, or even see an image of Guy, you will completely understand. He's just a happy person, but someone who's hit the wall a few times. But he's so positive, it caused me to ask myself, how can we all think a little bit more like him? My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Guy Hills, fashion photographer and co-founder of Dashing Tweeds. We chat about the challenges and joys of life as a creative professional, photographing Savile Row for the internet age, collaborating with Converse and Pharrell, and wearing what you love, regardless of what anyone else thinks about it.
1: Guy Hills, um, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for chatting. How are things? Uh, excellent. Just been in New York um, with the brand, with Dashing Tweeds,
2: for the last couple of days, and it's been excellent. Yeah, Meeting, um, meeting people who could be potential agents. Um, I get stopped in the street all the time when I'm wearing this crazy bright coat, um, and I've been to the Premier Vision Fabric Show been uh, to a couple of menswear shows. Yes, have a great time.
1: Yeah, you are like a perfect example of someone who truly embodies the joy of clothing. Um, I
2: set up the whole brand really just because I love clothes so much and I just couldn't get enough. You know, it's it's kind of addiction, isn't it? And You get sort of, you want a stronger and stronger doses. And then um, I got to a stage where uh, I was just sort of, had this idea in my head of wanting to really explore some interesting colors to wear and patterns and yeah. uh, and um yeah so uh, so the
1: whole brand was set up around my desires <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think from the first time i met you you've always had you know this and i say this and loving compliments this flanour wonderful sort of you know like incredibly detailed uh looks that you've had but the funny thing is, you know, from meeting you and spending time with you, you're probably the most disarming and laid back person I've ever met. It's it's, it's fantastic.
2: <laughs> That's nice to hear. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I my philosophy is just to enjoy myself and um, and take life as it comes. But I think actually. Uh, my father was well-dressed and we had a next-door neighbour who was a, uh, in the music industry and he would sort of always be buying new clothes. This was in the 70s and cast off kind of crazy colourful 70s clothes, which I would sort of pick up and start wearing. Oh, so really? there was this real fascination from the beginning of just exploring the depths of, of you know, what clothes had to offer. Yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure where I actually came from, but... Uh, Yeah, I've just always liked dressing up. Because you're you're London-born and raised? Yeah, yeah, I'm very parochial. I've lived in the same square mile all my life. In fact, I now live just around the corner from where I went to prep school when I was uh, uh, like 10. So I sometimes bump into friends who I haven't seen for years and years in the same area. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. and then I just went to school at Westminster, which is uh, one of the big London schools. Yeah. Yeah. so, yeah, I've lived in the same um, area. And now, actually, my shop I've opened, it's just a just, uh, stone throw from my family home. So, um, yeah. Wait, so, wait, wh- so why is that? Have you ever had a desire to live other places? I know, I've traveled a lot around the world. But yeah. uh, no, I think I'm just sort of like the area of London. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm quite parochial, really, just quite obviously, I love loved traveling, seeing new views of things, but happy. Well, actually, you know, when you're in the nicest bit of London, and um, everything is available, then there's no reason to, to move, really.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to say, welcome to every New Yorker. Yeah, yeah there yeah, you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because you, you come from uh, basically a family of, of collectors, but also of, you know, extremely highly trained professionals, right?
2: Uh, yeah, my, um, um, my father was an architect. Both my brothers are in
1: architecture.
2: My mother was a journalist. Um, my grandmother um, and my uh, aunt, her, her sister in the art world. Actually, she was a curator at the Met Museum uh, here. Oh, wow. Uh, she was a, uh, worked in Renaissance Jewels um, and she wrote lots of um, books all about uh, you know, really detailed books on Renaissance jewellery and looking at hat pins in Renaissance paintings and finding the real objects. And then my grandmother collected snuff boxes. Uh, her father snuff was Snuff boxes? A, yeah,
1: snuff boxes. Oh, wow. Well, okay, so <laughs> um, just for people who know a snuff box is like that's where you put your tobacco. That's where you yeah, put
2: yeah, powdered your... tobacco, which is yeah. snort. <laughs> actually, i find it quite funny that vaping has taken off because when they banned to um try to get rid of cigarette smoking i thought that snuff may um may uh oh make a back. resurgence there yeah actually, I've, I've got a, a fact you're like you know that expression toffee nose yes uh, which you know someone's got their nose stuck in the air apparently it's when people used to sn- uh, the snuff is brown um so when people used to snort snuff um and it's just powdered nicotine um they get they'd end up with a little bit of snuff brown stuff stuck on the end of their nose and they'd normally be wearing their stiff collars and their head would be up so they'd be kind of quite arrogant and that's where the toffee nose expression apparently comes from oh
1: my gosh
2: so so your grandmother was
1: collecting snuff boxes
2: well her father was a big art dealer and then she just loved collecting when i was young she said you've got to start collecting something like silver spoons or stamps or something what was the Um, first
1: thing you started collecting
2: actually i'm not a great collector at all i mean i have got a great collection of clothes but i'm not kind of Full of objects, but then she would show me all her snuff boxes, and some had eye miniatures in, and beautiful hinges, and um, some go right back to uh, William and Mary, and
1: um, oh my, Lord. some are
2: made out of. I've got one, a wooden one. I've inherited some of them, made out of uh, Mary Queen of Scots's bedpost. So there's a lot of history. Actually, I've got one, a scrimshaw one, made out of um, whale bones by prisoners of war in Napoleonic times, and they would chisel away a bit of whale bone and make it into a little snuff box. So
1: I was fascinated by the story and then touching things and, and, you know, just to sort of stuff. um. Yeah. There's something that happens and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but there's definitely something that happens when you, you physically engage with an object, when you physically touch it, what, no matter what it is, where, I mean, even for me, you know, I, I was just in London not too long ago and, you know, going to some of the museums and stuff like all I wanted to do was was touch it, you know, and, and, and for clothes, too, especially sometimes you look at it. And you're like, okay, you know, but then when you feel it, you have a better understanding of the history behind it, the luxury that, you know, and I, I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe some sort of other sensory activation. I, mean, I think there's nothing nothing more personal than something rubbing against your skin, you know.
2: So <laughs> that's fair <laughs> so, enough. <laughs> so, um, the texture of clothes, I, I totally love the fact that you can change clothes and have a totally different feeling. And the feeling's obviously emotional by looking in the mirror, seeing what you look like, but it's also physical, you know, if you're wearing different. Silky materials, cotton materials, woolen materials, you know, it really does have an effect. In fact, funny enough, I was just reading an article. I did a science degree, actually, so I always... Uh, That's right, biology, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, at, at Bristol University. But I get a subscription to um, New Scientist and other science things. Uh, but there's an interesting articles saying that actually people are losing their sense of touch and texture at the moment, because all the surfaces you touch, all the iPods and things are smooth, and we're living in an increasingly smooth world. So it's quite interesting that, that um, if you actually just think of every day, how often do you touch something like sandpaper or, or really kind of woolly clothes or um, anything? And it's anyway, it said there's becoming an increasing phobia of holes and things with different textures because we're really? living in a more hygienic, shiny world. That's yeah. Interesting, interesting fact. But yeah, clothes um, instantly is the first thing you do have you heard of that expression the yorkshire handshake when you meet sort of tailors where they kind sort of rather than they shake your hand but the first thing they do is they want to touch your clothes so they they grab the lapel of your jacket i can do it here on like on the, the microphone <laughs> you hear the kind of rustle and uh, and they and they give you a yorkshire handshake which is basically rubbing rubbing the lapel of your cloth to see um how fine the worsted is it's uh, yeah it's quite interesting fascinating
1: so you're you know you're younger you're growing up next and next door to you is some sort of musician who's basically hand giving you his like he was like an a&r man but he was kind
2: of one of those people were just dressed up you know fantastic 70s clothes and and he'd hand me uh hand me these bonkers uh uh, yes you know that prog rock kind of style of colorful jumpers and jackets and and i would um i can remember merrily kind of just Trying them on, experimenting—that whole thing that happens when you're at that age, you know, trying to find your your style, looking in the mirror. Right. Um, and then I remember going to school and everyone sort of laughing at me, saying, you, "You know, you look a bit, you look, you look different." And then actually just thinking, I don't really care. You know, I had this no no desire to to particularly conform, and then was just enjoying. And I wasn't really actively uh, trying to go against the grain of everything. It was just thinking, I love this personally, I'm going to wear it and enjoy it no matter what anyone else thinks. That's the kind of... I'm not quite sure. I actually haven't really analyzed it uh, that much of when it when it occurred. But yeah, it's just I'm almost a devil-may-care attitude of just as, as long as I like it, I don't really care what anyone else thinks.
1: Yeah, which is kind of a rare thing, you know, especially at, in an adolescent age in which a lot of people you just want to be accepted. And here you are just, you know, all... in It sounds like... You're just the happiest, just going your own way. Um, yeah. Just, just if, if I could, as I,
2: I was uh, given appreciation um, through all my parenting of beautiful things. And if I found something beautiful, then I, that was enough. You know, I didn't really feel I need the ratification of, um, of other people to say whether it was uh, right or wrong. But uh, yeah, interestingly, jumping uh, years and years uh, to a story, then. Um, I didn't actually realize how rare that was because you start creating stuff yes. for, a, for a shop. And then there are people who come in and like it. But then you think there's so few men who aren't cheap. You know, there's, there's so few who just think, I like this. I'm going to wear it and, and enjoy it. Um, 99% of them. So I discovered kind of, <laughs> as financially, um, it was you know, difficult. It was in the beginning. Um, so few men just think. I love this, I'm going to wear it, I don't care what anyone else thinks. But yeah. it, it doesn't matter what it is, because I always find it funny, in the 1970s, everyone was wearing brightly coloured ties, so you'd see the news reader with brightly coloured huge kipper ties reading the news, because he was conforming with what everyone else was wearing. So, <laughs> so the funny thing is, it doesn't really matter what it is, as long as you all look like the same as everyone else, yeah. then it's fine.
1: <laughs> Fair. So, you know, you go to school, you study biology, but you know before this you were you know kind of like this this budding photographer right i mean you're what like 17 you go away to australia oh that's right yeah yeah, yeah exactly i was
2: got really into photography at school and just fascinated by the magic i set up darkroom up the other day uh, for my kids and uh I just rekind- Yeah, it was great. I rekindled the magic, and you know, with the red light and the black and white, and the pictures coming out, and I was just, my heart was beating fast. You know, watching the image come out, and I said to my kids, um, "Isn't this amazing?" And they said, "Yeah, whatever." You know, they're just, <laughs> they're just surrounded by imagery nowadays. But at the, at the time, photography, um, when I first did it at school, and then uh, an image came, um, I was just absolutely amazed by the the instant creativity of being able to take a picture um, and develop it yourself, and something. Magical to appear.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Making something like that. But to continue yeah. doing it, I mean, because you, you had quite a knack for it. So, like, how did... Just so listeners aware, how, how did you get the opportunity to do this uh, this Australian trip?
2: Um, so, um, I left school, and actually, my mother was a journalist, so okay, she bought a camera. Um, she was always uh, writing stories, and they'd send a photographer to cover the, the story. Uh, and then my mother thought she'd get a camera and start taking pictures. And... Um, and I was fascinated with photography and uh, just started doing it at school. And so I'd borrow her camera and uh, while I was on stories and take pictures for her. And then she was always going, look, taking them to be developed. And the pictures you took were a bit better than my, than my ones and they'd get printed in newspapers. And um, then I thought I could earn some money. Uh, just, um, I decided to take a year off between school and university. So I just instantly became a press photographer and started working for PR companies and uh, newspapers. And just took pictures and then rushed back. um, And I totally undercharged myself. So I was, you
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, welcome to the world of being an entrepreneur. You're like, ah, I don't know. How much would you pay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um,
2: So then then I was earning a little bit of money being a photographer, but I really wanted to travel. And there was this uh, society called the Fairbridge Society and they were sending kids ages ago to Australia. um, But they had this uh, award, this grant which I then applied for. And I did a photo essay of my life in Australia and they sent me off to a sheep farm. Um, it was quite funny. Actually. I didn't know I'd spend all my time with wool later on, but yeah. I was on this big sheep farm in, uh, near Perth and uh, yeah, chasing sheep around on motorbikes and um, shearing them. And yeah, it was great fun. And then just documenting it all. And then I just yeah, did a whole photo essay. I was taking pictures all the time. I was looking at um, photographers I admired, like Cecil Beaton uh, and um, Bailey and... Um, uh, oh, um, uh, Norman Parkinson. I know I was just sort of really exploring photography, taking lots of pictures, but then I was um, uh, constantly snapping. I had an old Rolly Flex as well by that time. Right. So I was sort of documenting things, trying to take beautiful pictures. Um, yeah, so it was just, it was almost like a real passion that uh, yeah I was, uh, I was exploring, yeah. Well,
1: it's pretty rare that someone's passion also is something they're good at you know what I mean? And, uh, and I don't yeah. say that to belittle anyone, but I know exactly what you mean. Cause I've been trying to learn to sing and I'm
2: definitely not good at doing that.
1: Yes, yeah. it's... <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you're into photography, but you're actually good enough at it that you're being validated by being, you know, printed in newspapers and
2: yeah, I guess I was quite lucky. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I really wanted to get into being like a fashion photographer. I just thought it was a day before days before digital. So it was such an interesting, uh, time because there was just, it was really glamorous being a photographer then, yeah. and being able to create an image. It seemed to sum up everything I was interested in. I love making things, like doing things with my hands, something physical, mm-hmm. um, but also creating a fantasy which could be, come into reality. And that's exactly what photography was for me. Um, and, well, the documentary stuff was fine, but I like the idea of thinking of something magical and, and making it a reality yeah. in, in a photograph. So after my degree, which... Um, i uh did without a kind of uh, focus on becoming a biologist it was just uh, more for the fun of university i um, immediately started working as a um an assistant to some fashion photographers in london okay and uh yeah, learning learning the tricks of the trade and how was that uh, it was great fun it was just it was the tail end of the absolute golden era of uh, of photography in the uh, in the uh, early 90s and um yeah, it was still, still something really cool about being a photographer. There were uh, 24-hour labs all around London. You know, there's no digital images anywhere, no, f- right. te- no telephones. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine those times. So just having a picture was something, a beautiful print of a photograph was something special that people really looked at. Um, and I worked for these photographers. I signed up for this. Um, it was quite hard. It was quite competitive. So I spent a lot of time cold calling signed up with this company called the association of photographers that had a list a rotor of uh, assistants and then big advertising and fashion photographers would need someone to help and they would uh go through the list and so then it was it was good fun i would just get last minute calls it was always last minute um, <laughs> and then um and then a photographer would need an assistant and you'd go off and be on a film set photographing catherine zeta jones or uh, bill gates i remember helping to photograph and um, uh, arnold schwarzenegger and yeah other film stars uh, so I kind of learned a lot of the skills. Actually one of the first jobs I had was a big advertising shoot and it was for um, Heineken and it was a huge studio. It had three horses, 30 people, a couple of dwarfs, some snakes and tents and everyone was wired up with a wire down their arm, and a little light bulb. Um, they were holding a, a, a glass of beer with the light bulb that shone through it. And it was all, you know, no, the retouching you see now and the effects didn't really exist and everything had to be done in one shot shot in a huge ten eight camera. Yeah, it was, it was
1: exciting stuff. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, good fun. And you're like, you know, I mean, you're getting all of this like thrown at you. But what's interesting, to, to jump back one second, I mean, just just the idea and and the will and the drive to do something like that and feel confident enough to put yourself out there is a really, really big and bold thing. Well, that was a thing that actually my mother taught me. Um
2: because she was a freelance journalist and you know, anyone who has a passion and then wants to try and make some money out of it has to get through this block of just the marketing side of things. Yeah. So, uh, so when you're really young and then this, the whole cold calling and just chasing, and it was competitive to try and even get your, get your foothold in, um, was, was really t- tricky. And then when you get something, you have to realize that if you get a job, and they're paying you. It may not be your dream job, but it's, uh, it's a step. So the first thing I got was problem page photos. You know, we you have to start somewhere. And it was, um, uh, it was for, you know, one of those really cheap magazines. Uh, Women's Own, it was called. What's um, a
1: problem page photo? A
2: problem page photo is... <laughs> getting uh, a girlfriend of mine at the time to sit on the end of the bed with my dad and um, and and uh, have her head in her hands going oh my god i'm sleeping with an older man what do my friends think <laughs> So you're staging these things? Yeah, I had to stage them. That's um, amazing. <laughs> but I was getting paid 30 quid a day as an f- assistant, and then I'd get uh, paid 200 pounds for one of these staged photographs. Um, and they were just put in the problem pages of magazines. It that's, was quite <laughs> it, was, it was. quite funny. But then, then all of a sudden, I was a photographer, you know, I was earning money. And then what I would do is, um, this was part of a big group called IPC, uh, publishing and they had a huge tower block full of all the magazines mm-hmm. so once you get through security which was notoriously tough because all these people were trying to show their portfolios um but once you're working for the magazine you're in the building and then they had all sorts of other glamorous magazines so then oh. i would uh, accidentally get lost and walk onto the wrong floor was all the time with my portfolio and um and then just walk up to the picture desk and just sort of introduce myself and um yeah try and get more jobs so in the same building there was a uh, a teen fashion magazine, um, I can't remember the name, Ms. it was called. Um, and, um, there was this amazing girl I bumped into in the lift and I said I was a fashion photographer and I had barely shot any fashion by that time. Um, and, um, so then she gave me this break and started photographing young girls dancing around, uh, in Brighton, I think the first shoot was. And then, um, actually the first shoot was quite funny because it was bucketing down with rain and it was the worst weather ever. And, um, the, uh, she was saying, um, okay, we've got to cancel the shoot, we're going to turn back. And it was like a break of my first fashion shoot. And I said, no, we can't do that, we can't do that, we'll all go out. And the models who are these young 16-year-old girls go, you've got to be kidding, it was proper full-on gale and storms. And I said, no, we're going to do it. So um, I had my assistant, had a light, had a kind of style which was very, um, um, uh, using lighting outside and quite vivid, and I was shooting on colour. And and uh, we went outside and the girls just couldn't believe they were out in these wild conditions. They were laughing their heads off and I was getting blown over and they had a bag of chips. And the picture's just so good because there was no, nothing false about them. Their models were just genuinely kind of just totally amused that they were being blown away on the beach. Um, and that was such a great shoot um, that as soon as it was published, I got loads of other people ringing me up saying, I've seen these brilliant pictures in this magazine. Can you do some more stuff? So yeah, it's a real lesson that just persevering and once you've got your foot in the door, just doing whatever it takes uh, is
1: yeah, a good it, way to start. Well, whatever it takes is is the key right there. Because I, I think, you know, not that I'm some expert or anything, but people will often ask me and it's like, hey, how do I get to here? Or, you know, or I'll talk to other people and, and here is a place where like that equals success or that equals no compromise. Maybe I'll, I'll, that's a better phrase. And I think a lot of people forget All of the different steps uh, a creative or an entrepreneur takes to get to a point and to where they fear they have to compromise, you know, or to where they don't have to compromise at all or, or compromise very little to create their craft and, and make something successful. And maybe some of it has to do with the fact that we're in a, a world where so much of, of what people see we do is really like curated by the person that's showing them where it's like oh actually all i do all all day is i sit and i talk to fancy people and i hold microphones and then i get in private cars and it's like no i also have to try to get paid and i have to try to do this absolutely
2: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: but uh that's a good point the idea of just
2: starting um out with a view to becoming big but then being content with where you are because you meet loads of people and they don't even want to put the hard work in they just want to go straight to the exactly the top I think in the digital world, it's there's so much digital stuff. Then people think they can bypass it um, more easily. Whereas um, in the tailoring world, you get people who start at college and they start as an apprentice, yeah. and they realize they've got to really got to put the work in before they they get anywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also the drive to 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 accept something because you weren't like, hey, I'm going to be a fashion photographer, and my first shoot is going to be the front cover of I don't know queue or you know rolling stone or whatever like that you it sounded like you were going to any place and you're saying hey this is me let me give me a shot let me try to do something yeah absolutely
2: because the passion's inside you isn't it so it's it's if you're doing something that you love um and you've got a kind of vision in a way it doesn't really matter what it is you're doing to start off with as long as you're doing um something that you that you really enjoy so even if it's for uh, uh uh, beginning teen, teen magazine with the circulation of 17 year olds um, or actually 13 year olds I think this one was. <laughs> um, but it, um, if you 're doing it and you 're doing your best and you 're trying to fulfill uh, some inner desire then uh, then that's a, you know, a good start yeah. um, you, you can't really uh, you can't ever i uh, think through the process feel that you're not, um, you're not happy with what you're creating yeah if, if you 're creative yeah. Um, I mean I think though if I look at they look at my old shots when I started out and then look at other shots, they all they stand on their own, no matter what the uh you know what the market is. Yeah. Do you still shoot? Uh, yeah, I shoot all the advertising for the brand. And that's the thing I like now for the Dashing Tweeds brand is creating because you well, I've created the brand from scratch and the brand um well it is what it is when you when you see it, but you can identify um you can identify it very quickly from looking at the images I've created, the idea of um, uh, giving more color and texture to men and just sort of fulfilling this gap that I've sort of identified in the, in the market.
1: Yeah. And this, I mean, and for dashing tweets too, and it, like this wasn't something that was, Oh, it was always the goal to create dashing tweets. It were, you know, I, I worked my fingers till they bled to, to create this thing. I mean, cause it, it, it sounds like this kind of happened from a photography assignment, right?
2: Um, It's a, it's a personal voyage. Um, The whole, it, it's, it it does start i guess the journey starts when you're a teenage boy looking in front of the mirror going who am i what i want what i want to be and then you're not quite sure and you say let's experiment with this let's experiment with that so i think the whole of i've never really had that big division between a career and my life so i've been very very lucky to to embody my personal journey of of discovery and creativity and and be able to turn that into a into a brand rather than as you were saying, thinking here's an end goal. Let's just try and get to it. I yeah, think it's uh, it's a process of um, of evolution
1: of you know of of these of these ideas. How do you stay happy at every part of your life? Because I think that's something that I wrestle with a lot.
2: Um, I think I mean I um I didn't come from a happy family. My, my parents got divorced and they were she uh, fighting all the time and throwing things at each other. Jeez. So um so it was um. Yeah, I didn't grow up uh, my first early days weren't that happy. But well, I was trying to shrug it, shrug it off. But um, that's that's not really the point. I think the point of being happy is just being... Uh, condi- if I feel there's a creativity inside me and I like making things. And as long as I'm making something or doing something that I think is good or could potentially get better or there's a beginning of a journey and you could see the progress then that just there's nothing that makes you happier than, uh, yeah. than than doing that so if i'm not if i'm if i was stuck in isolation um not being able to communicate with people and not having any ideas then i become totally miserable. <laughs> yeah, same <laughs> but, here. But I, but I feel that there's, a, um, that there's always something I want to explore or do. I, mean, I feel sorry for people when I meet them and you say, what do you want to do? And they say, I've got no idea. And say, there must be some idea. Um, and they go, no, I've got nothing. And you know, they're, they're going to end up being miserable. Um, yeah. or some of those people are miserable. And you say, there must be something. But for me, I've always, there's always been that, like a feeling inside of something that I want to experiment with, um, improve, uh, create and you just do one step towards c- creating something and then you look at it and you go that's not bad i could probably do better but um that's made me happy i'm going to have another go and that'll make me happy so yeah i think um that's uh, that's very important to be true to yourself yeah um and to to constantly um con- well for me just to constantly kind of create things
1: and uh, and enjoy them right so you, you jump back, you're, you're shooting for magazines and you're shooting for bigger and more fancy magazines. Yeah. I got to doing some really great
2: shoots. Yeah, I was shooting for Jaguar magazines and Cartier and had amazing shoots with beautiful models around the world. And I was a main photographer for this quintessential magazine, which is lifestyle thing. Had a regular column uh, clubbing around the world with uh, Freddie Windsor. We'd go clubbing in Moscow and Beirut and, then I'd be shooting crazy fashion stories. Yeah. It was great, great fun. Um, but then uh, when I got married, um, I had to cut my uh, honeymoon short by a couple of days because I was offered a, a big shoot for Range Rover in LA, which was good fun. Um, my wife wasn't that impressed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds like you married yeah. the right person. Then. Yeah, yeah, my wife's amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the best thing about being at university was, uh, was having met her.
1: That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and, uh, it was, that was one of those.
2: I was, that was uh, just a romantic love story. I just saw her the first day at university sitting on the window of this... Um, hall of residence and she was on this first floor window and just literally love at first sight oh. but she wasn't interested in me at all so that was uh, i know that you know, feeling <laughs> <laughs> so that took a lot, quite a long time uh, that story
1: so you get married and you're 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 now kind of trying to alter your career a little bit In terms yeah of your absolutely travel. so uh so then
2: um and then i had another fashion shoot uh, for three weeks in rio and the bus would turn up with models and stylists and we would go um let's go off we're going off to rio and i'd jump down the house with a massive smile on my face and say bye to my wife and she'd say at least you can pretend not to smile as <laughs> I was going to say bye see you in three weeks uh, actually on that particular shoot she, she came out I was going to uh, say yeah there you uh, go yeah, which was fun um, but then uh, yeah we had a great uh, we got we uh, got got married and then got pregnant on the honeymoon. So kids are on their way pretty quickly. Oh, wow. Um, so I was thinking, and my wife is a, is a top lawyer, so she's working really hard. She was made actually partner of a law firm in the same, same month as well. So it was very busy, wow. very, very, very busy month. And um, so I was thinking that, uh, yeah, all this traveling was not, was not going to work. And yeah. actually, to tell you the truth, there was a, a change in the air. Digital photography had just come in. Magazines were paying less. The work I was doing at that level of fashion um, it wasn't like you know, Vogue top covers. It was uh, commercial work, so I was yeah. shooting um, Mail on Sunday, U magazine. I mean, well paid, fun commercial fashion, doing uh, stuff for Tatler. But it was becoming quite samey. You know, it's just the same, right, same stuff. And then there was a real realization. Um, uh, I didn't actually realize it for years and years. I thought I was photographing beautiful girls on beaches. It only really occurred to me that I was selling bikinis you know, <laughs> after, after a long, long, long time. Um, so I kind of had enough of, enough of that. Yeah. Um, I was, but I, photography was my passion. So I was uh, looking for some work in, in London. And um, I was actually walking down Savile Row and I bumped into Andrew Bolton, who's now um, a curator at the Met costume department. Mm. And he had just been speaking to Andrew Rowland, um, who owned Anderson and Shepherd. And um, she was particularly clever because she had had a career in marketing for a, a Dior, I think it was.
1: Yeah, um, she was doing the at the Estee Lauder and Lauder. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. And which yeah.
2: is which is the toughest, toughest uh, you know marketing you can get because the products you know, inherently worthless. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and it's all marketing. Um, so uh, so she would come to Savile Row, and she really shook up the whole place. And uh, there was it was again, it was a hard time because. Their rents were going up. I yep. mean, there's a real change at that. This was about 10 years ago. And um, Savile Row uh, was really not up to speed with the digital revolution. So there was no websites. There were a few charlatans who said they were Savile Row tailors and had quite a high ranking on the websites who'd so just been assistants at uh. Savile Row. Yeah, so ander was really wanting to say, right, we've got to get Savile Row up to uh, the 21st century. Um, and um, so... Um, they had this idea of forming an organization called Savile Row Bespoke. They got 13 of the top tailors um, together. And then the idea was like, uh, it's like marketing champagne, really. So you, have, you promote champagne. You have all the houses, the Tattingers and the Moes. So you promote Savile Row to protect Savile Row. And then you have all the um, Anderson Shepherds and uh, Huntsman's and Henry Pools. Um, so I had this amazing job. Um, uh, Andrew was just speaking to uh and was asking if he knew a photographer. I was shooting a story uh, for um, um, a magazine. I can't remember which one. Uh, in Savile Row. Actually, it was quite an interesting story. It was the new and the old guard. So I was photographing and- Angus Cundy at Henry Poole. And I was photographing oh my um, God. Brandelli at uh, Kilgore as the young kind of buck. Um, anyway, I was just in the, r- in the row with my camera and bumped into Andrew. And then he said he should speak to Andrew. She's looking for a photographer. So I went around the next day. Um, and, uh, and said how can I help you and she said well we need to do this huge website for the uh, Sir Savile Row it will involve uh, photographing every single tailor on the row and I didn't believe it it was like completely my dream come true because um, you know, I love clothes and this was you know, I was far too scared to walk into a Savile Row tailor and, and there's no way I could afford the clothes particularly at the time so the idea of actually being able to have carte blanche to walk into all the tailors was,
0: was just incredible for me Hello are you a fan of the pod? Are you a friend of the pod? Have you heard of our Patreon? Join the Blam fam! You'll receive access to exclusive bonus pods like our recent revisit with Sid Mashburn, our upcoming miniseries with Mr. Mort, and our community Slack group. You also get invites to members only events and more. There is so much good stuff. But best of all, you're supporting the show! Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo and join the Blam fam! All right, we'll see you there.
1: Yeah, and also I mean you were taking pictures of everything that they Absolutely, were.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I'd just gone digital as well. So I'd bought my first digital camera. So typically when I was shooting fashion I was spending 500 pounds a day on film and processing. And all of a sudden that there was no expense at all. It was just my time. Um, right. So um I uh, I had plenty of time cuz just got married and just got a house and I wasn't travelling so much. So it was, ended up being five years' work, and I just uh, went into all the tailors, photographed all the archives, just looked through everything, and they just left me alone uh, with my camera. The, actually, the uh, idea which Ander liked when I was uh, going into Savile Row to document it, and pres- I was the first person, really, to present Savile Row to the public um, on this website, and I was working with this journalist, James Sherwood. So it was a fantastic job. He's saying, right you've got to show the world what Savile Row is. And everyone's first impression is, you know, really old, 200-year-old tailors, fusty, yep. dusty. And I'd seen some other pictures photographing Savile Row and it was all raked yellow light, bit of dust on the archives. <laughs> you, right. you, know, you know, the kind of thing. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I've, I love um, fashion and clothes and brightness. And I had a photographic style which was kind of using... Um, high saturated film and bright flash and things so i thought well, i'm just going to shoot savile row as if it's one of my fashion shoots with ring flash uh bright lights really make it zing and look amazing so i was photographing everything um with these kind of ring flashes bright lights um very kind of high color and everything just sang and jumped out and all the old wow. dusty red army uniforms just i shot them against um other fabrics and they just you know just popped um and all the other fabrics I saw in the archives, suddenly they were really bright colours. When I shot them with the lights, you realised there was nothing fusty and dusty about old Savile Row at all. In fact, it was it was really fashion uh, and colourful and amazing. So I couldn't get enough when I discovered that. And I was presenting my images to Andrew and everyone else, and they were going, "Wow, everything looks so you know so crisp and, and great. We love it." So I sort of hit hit um, on a on a good style that enabled them to. Um, they all want me. So I ended up just getting work and work and work, um, photographing. So first thing was the website. And then we did a book with James Sherwood. And then all the individual houses, there was a great girl. Have you met Poppy at Huntsman? She yeah, was, I have Poppy, not. Uh, po- she used to be at Huntsman. Uh, she was fantastic. And she was showing me their archives. They had a fantastic archive of photography as well, because they could afford all the best photographers. at Oh, the time. um, they're hilarious pictures. Again, they were, there was nothing kind of, uh, Old-fashioned about them. There were just these modern-looking men in these ridiculously strong fashion poses with this great lighting. Um, so I looked at those and thought, I can, you know, shoot modern Savile Row like that. So uh, again, we got models and we shot brochures for them, and it was just just having fun, really, uh, making yeah. it making it look making it look um, interesting and, and modern and crisp. Uh, so yeah, they they loved all that.
1: And so this is where, you know, the, the, the true origin of dashing tweeds comes into play, Yeah, absolutely.
2: Right? So then I was looking at all the archives and thinking, thinking I want something like this. These, cl- these clothes are amazing. The cuts are amazing. The fabrics are fabulous. Uh, I went upstairs. Well, I struck a deal with the tailors because they said, look, we haven't got much money, but we can pay you in tailoring. Um, there you and, go. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I was... Uh, Speaking of the ball, there were thirteen tailors with Savile Row bespoke. And I thought, well, thirteen Savile Row uh, suits at five grand a pop, which I think they were then. Uh, that's not bad. Yeah, but, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. So I was quite pleased with the um, uh, you know my, my my terms of payment. Um, but I didn't want to have thirteen grey grey uh, na- or navy <laughs> navy suits. So Makes I sense. Uh, um I uh, looked at the archives, went up to the front of house. Uh, chaps and said uh, where are these fabrics can you show me your bunches and, uh, and there was nothing there they were just like literally just books and books and books of gray and navy for the city and then i said what about the tweeds and the tweeds are just all the traditional shooting tweeds which is the camouflage for for the country just right. gray and uh, not gray sorry green and um that kind of lovety mix and uh, browns you know sludgy colors well so, i mean they are designed traditional tweeds designed so that you're not noticed and don't scare away the uh, the birds or um, stags or whatever you're after
1: right so yeah because tweed was a camouflage yeah it's you're camouflage. exactly right
2: yeah, yeah yeah i mean some of the early early um tweeds the um the lords would send their gillies up to the top of the mountain holding various tweeds up on the heather moors and see which ones disappeared and then they would choose choose those ones as the most camouflaged ones oh wow I mean, The uh, the love it mix particularly um but anyway in the archives were all these really brightly colored fun things where where young bucks were just enjoying themselves and um and they had classic estate tweeds where people were wanting to, to, to uh, especially all the kind of Victorian nouveau riche who were making money from the um, industrialisation. Uh, they were getting estates up there, commissioning really exciting tweeds, um, dressing all their estate staff in them uh, and having a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, none of those fabrics particularly existed. So uh, I, I was looking around thinking, how can I get these fabrics that... Um, that are more interesting and also at the time i would um, throughout university i just uh, had my father's old um harris swede jacket it was a brown herringbone and um so they're just a classic I, yeah just yeah. classic i've been wearing it all the time bristol's so rainy I, the first month it just non-stop rained so i had this akubra hat which i got in australia when i was <laughs> working on this sheep farm and then some rm william boots which i still love i've got them now yeah um and um um and my father's old tweed jacket and i can pretty much lived in that for three years at, at, at university um so i had this real love of just the cloth because it kept you warm uh, but then i was wearing the old tweed jacket in london and it just looked totally out of place so now it got me thinking i thought well hang on tweed's all about camouflage it's about um country camouflage and and you know um fitting in uh, why don't i i've really like as an urban tweed like a camouflage for london you pick the colors of the of the pavements and the yellow lines and the buildings and, and wouldn't that be great? So I had this bubbling up in my mind thinking that's what I really, really want um, and then I was interested in science in you know, doing a science degree thinking maybe I could put some bit of tech and stuff in it as well. So I was just thinking thinking of all this and then I was photographing the archives and I was realising that Savile Row had a lot more to offer than I had perceived it to, uh, to have. I thought it was you know, very t- traditional in a boring way um, so I was thinking, oh, hang on, there must be some way of getting this fabric. And, um, I was looking around at the time. I also had my photographic studio and I was looking for people to, uh, to photograph in London and work with. And I thought to myself, it'd be great to, uh, to find a stylist, an independent stylist to mm. work with where I could create my own visions. Um, so I was going to the art shows. I went to the Royal College of Art show and other degree shows, just looking for, um, any creatives who would be on the same wavelength as me. And I walked into the Royal College of Art and there was this fridge flowing with fabric coming out and just bright colors and amazing patterns. Um, and Kirsty wasn't there at the time. It was a uh, girl next door. Uh, I think I was, a, uh, I was wearing a Kenzo suit, I remember. I really uh, Kenzo, fun, there you go. Yeah, a Kenzo printed linen suit, which I'd bought in the sale which I loved. Anyway, I left a message and the next day, Kirsty got a message from her friend saying, a man in a crazy suit said he loves your fabrics and wants to work with you. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. Um, so then I met Kirsty, and I said, like, I want this great idea. Um, um, I love all your fabrics. Um, can we use some of them for a shoot? Cause I want to shoot some more of my own kind sort of fashion and like the Savile Rose stuff. And maybe you've got some stuff, some fabrics I could um, get something tailored out of. Um, and um she said well i haven't got any fabrics for you to 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 wear but maybe i could make one i said well i love this one that you've just designed and it was like a chevron um uh with exciting uh, purple and yellow and it, look, it's, it was elegant. It sounds, you know, all these colours, it's hard to describe how elegant it was. Um, anyway, she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll speak to the uh, instructor, the um, technician at uh, the Royal College, and maybe he'll let me uh, do a bit of work and I can create this fabric for you. So then she created a little swatch and um, she said, look, we have to get it woven properly, but I'll find a mill up in Scotland. So she did a bit of research, found a yarn dealer and a mill in Scotland. And then um, I said, great, you know, let's weave this fabric. So I had this great idea, had this fabric woven, uh, took it to a tailor, had a, had a cycling suit made because that's what I really wanted to, uh, to look great on my bicycle. So I was looking at the, uh, the old designs in Savile Row and realizing everything was about form and function. Menswear is all technical, uh, yeah. you know, even historically. Yeah. So I had a pair of plus fours made, uh, which, um, I mean, in retrospect, they looked a bit sort of vintage and tinted, but in my mind, they were very kind of modern because they were designed especially for riding on my bicycle. Um, and um, anyway, I love, just, I love this suit. It was just uh, absolutely fantastic. And the tailors enjoyed making it because they understood uh, where I was coming from and it was obviously you know, a true bespoke piece. Yeah. And um, that was the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Then I just became ad- addicted and thought, hang on, hang on, I'm onto something here. There's, uh, there's definitely a, um, uh, uh, a desire for this. I'm sure I can uh, uh, persuade other people that they may like it. If I can just weave some more fabric then so my business plan was to you had to have you had to have 60 meters of fabric woven so i thought if i can weave um 60 meters of fabric i can keep five or six for myself and then i can sell the rest oh there you go Uh, yeah that was that was that was the business plan and then i had this idea of the urban tweeds so i said to kirsty i'll go around um chipping up yellow pavements and picking up stones and color sampling london and then we can use that for a design for, uh, for a new urban tweed. And Kirsty said, yeah, great. But I've left uh, the Royal College. I can't do any more work on the looms. Right. Uh, I said, oh, so I was a bit downhearted because I, I was so excited with this first tweed. And then I said, what happens if I buy you a loom? You know, I was kind of so, so obsessed by yeah. this idea. She said, that'd be absolutely great. It's my dream. I said, what would you like? She said, I'd like this special made Swiss arm loom. And um, I said, how much are they? She said, about 10 grand. Like, Oof. Well, you know that's a lot of money, but, yeah. Um, but um, you know it's manageable. I've been my career as a photographer has been good. Um, let's let's do it and, and buy it, and we'll put it in your in your um, in your front room. And she was sharing like a student house. Oh my gosh! And, and, uh, and she she was obviously really excited to get this loom, which is her dream. And um, she was happy to uh, speak to her flatmates and said, "Do you mind if there's a loom sitting in the corner of the uh, room?" Um, anyway, so um, so we got got the loom, and then. Uh, had this idea of this uh, urban tweed. And then I thought, hang on, I'm going to be cycling around in London in it. And then, um, actually, no, that was right. I had my first uh, suit made, which was for cycling around. And then my wife um, said, you know, back to become a dad, I don't want you to be run over. You've got to wear this bright yellow reflective high-vis vest Yeah, as I was cycling around town. You're like, but I got my cool tweed jacket. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's <laughs> going to ruin my look. Um, I'd rather be, uh, yeah, I'd rather be... Uh, looking um looking good and dead <laughs> <laughs> um anyway it gave me an idea i thought hang on why can't i weave some of this reflective threads um in in with the uh, fabric so i spoke to kirsty and said uh, do you think we could weave reflective threads in and then make a kind of urban tweed that that lights up when um, car headlights hit you on a bicycle and she said yeah i'm sure did a bit of research we um found some uh, of this thread by 3m and um took it up to the mills in Scotland. They didn't like using it, but they, they persevered. He was a fantastic, well, still is a fantastic weaver. uh, Bobby Trussler. Um, anyway, so we had this reflective threads, this uh, reflective tweed came back and I was just beside myself with excitement and had another suit made and, um, thought this is the best thing ever. We need to find a brand name together. Kirsty and I, and we can sell this, sell tons and tons of it. I'm going to be rich and famous instantly. (laughs) This is just the best idea ever. Um, so we sat in, uh, in Kirsty's uh, kitchen thinking of kind of names. And she was thinking, on a crest of a weave, she was saying. Oh. <laughs> That's not a great name. Uh, and I was thinking about the ones I was thinking, well, you know, everyone's heard of tweed. It's yeah. an iconic fabric. And I want to modernize it. And I'm always dashing around on my bicycle and dashing with a reflective, it's like flashing. And, um, you know, um, let's call it dashing tweeds. And she said, oh, OK, then. So, um, so I spoke to a friend of mine who was a um, fantastic calligrapher called Betty Saldi. And um, she was actually doing uh, some identity for um, Fortnum and Masons at the time. Oh, wow. Anyway, so she helped. Um, I had this great idea. And it was all very futuristic and, and, uh, and it's slightly exaggerated. And she said, if you want to have a brand that's really going to last, uh, you've got to have this elegant uh, typeface. They designed this very kind of toned down well, you can see it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All they had tons of this work and that, all the dashingness ended up just being that little flick on the D. That was all <laughs> that, was what uh, graphic designers did. Yeah. They distilled everything into one little, tiny little extra, like a uh, eyelash, eye um, uh, dent. Well, actually, it's almost like a bit of a Nike kind of thing, isn't it? With a little go faster. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then i as soon as you get your, um, your name written, the name of the brand written in print,
1: it's pretty exciting. Um, so then I, um, then I had
2: then I had a brand. Yeah, yeah I was
1: going to say, because I mean, it's funny, you know, because when you first came out with, cause I remember I, I saw you, you were written on someone's blog and you were this, and there was like a little video, maybe I can find it, but it was, this was super early, maybe 2008,
2: nine. Yeah, yeah I think that's right at the beginning. Yeah.
1: And, you know, there was a video of you biking around and it was about the reflective material and the tweeds, but what you were doing is probably the most true reflection of why Tweed was created anyway. Because, I mean, Tweed, like you were saying, it was, it's a, it was a camouflage, it was a performance fabric. Yeah, it was yeah, so the
2: original sportswear. If you look at any English gentleman yeah. Uh, or... Um Scott, uh, Curse Scot- uh, is reminding me they're Scottish as well. So, you know, any, uh, um, English or uh, British, sure. or British yeah. yeah, British, exactly. Um, they were any sport they were doing, whether it was hunting, shooting, fishing, or early motoring, or early cycling, or anything, it was in, in Tweed, um, yeah, climbing Everest, you know, it was done in Tweed, really, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, wow, Edmund yeah, Hillary rolling up in tweed! Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's even now the that um, New Zealand brand icebreaker with the fine merino base layers. Mm. The top athletes are using it for um, for endurance um, climbing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, wool hasn't really ever been bettered uh, for, for a lot of a lot of high performance things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tweed is the original sportswear. So exactly. So the idea of modernizing it. It's not as crazy as you uh,
1: no as you think. No, not at all. I mean, and I, I think, you know, and this is where, you know, I I remember seeing like the designs that you had. And, and like for me, you know, my idea of Tweed, it was still very new and foreign to me. And so I just thought like, oh, I don't know, like maybe a, a British person that's hunting or something like that. But you had it, you know, because did you help start the Tweed run? Yeah, so at the time, so I was
2: just on my own little... I mean, you may have guessed. Talking so far, I've just got this own creative bubble, and just (laughs) (laughs) anything I'm passionate about, I just sort of pursue with personal interest. You're an evangelist. That's all right. That's great. (laughs) And um, so I was just on this my own little world. And all of a sudden, I I was actually uh, also in my going going back a few years. I was working as a bicycle courier, um, just some money. There were cool times. It was again it really dates you as before um, any uh, any computers and things. There are a few fax machines, but if a bit of paper wanted to be taken from the West End to the City of London, it was done on bicycle couriers. And there were rows and rows and rows of bicycle couriers. And I would, uh, you just pitch up to a company, they give you a radio and a bag. Um, I think I worked for a company called Just In A Tick. And <laughs> um, and then you were off bicycle couriering. And then there was a real scene of these kind of people on bikes and there's some fixed wheel bikes, which were just a... I think they came from New York, actually, the first idea of yeah. people riding fix, fixies. Um, so yeah, there was this proper kind of scene and I was on the fringes of it. I'd been on, when I, on my way back from Australia, I went uh, via Bali and bought some crazy batik clothes and oh, had wow. some pink Converse. And it was the kind of beginning of Rave, well, it was in the middle of Rave. So there was so much colour around. And it was just such fun times. Um, so um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a colourful, fun time and cycling was like a really big big thing so i was on the edge of that community um and then um jump a few years um to when i created the reflective tweed i was aware that there was this kind of uh, still this kind of hub of uh, couriers racing each other yeah and um and forming these little kind of um different clubs and so one chap called ted he'd um got together with his friends and formed this tweed run and it was a uh, it was a lot of humor in it because it was that was towards the end of the rave scene right and um and then everyone had been, um, uh, you know, massive warehouse parties wearing crazy clothes and having yeah. a really, really good time. And that had sort of come to an end. And then people were looking around for the, for the next thing. And um, they discovered vintage shops and, and uh, heritage clothes. And people were starting to, uh, to wear old tweed jackets and reinvent the gentleman. And another friend of mine, Ian um, Bruce, had invented, or a lot of people had this brilliant band called The Correspondence and was doing... Um, what's that, what the genre's called now he was mixing uh, hip-hop and dance music up with 20s um oh, electro wow. swing yeah okay so it was that it was that electro swing scene was happening around the east end of london and people were cycling around so um so that was kind of brewing and i guess i was aware of it and I, on my own little bubble but all of a sudden everything converged this chap ted organized this thing called the tweed run so people were then rediscovering the joy of vintage clothes yeah um, and cycling and some some people were from the curry like hardcore couriers and some people were just um cycling like i was because it was the easiest way to get around london and informed yeah. they all met in Berkeley square um i don't know hanover square actually just outside vogue i remember the first one there were about sort of 50 or 60 of us oh, and wow. i heard about it and just pitched up And yeah it was a real scene and suddenly i realized that there were loads of other people with the same mindset and that's what always happens isn't it you get um you think you're in your own creative bubble and you realize other people are in the creative bubble and then you're part of a scene um yes, that was great fun yeah uh, so then um then everyone said hey i love the tweeds you're wearing these are not like old old vintage tweeds these look really modern and fresh and and some of them are reflective that's amazing um so then i suddenly i had quite a big little well uh, big market a little a niche market for people who really liked what i was doing and wanted bits of them and to help the marketing i gave um Free sashes to Ted, so all the people leading the tweed run were wearing dashing tweeds. So I was like becoming the first sponsor of the uh, of the uh, tweed run. Oh, that's uh, huge! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was really good fun, and that just grew and grew and grew, and more and more people. There were two things going on with the tweed run. I think people were suddenly realising um, that uh, real clothes had a lot to offer. Uh, yeah, and uh, people were really, really uh, exploring uh, how much in uh, against the form and function how how technical old clothes were um, yeah and everything that i've been discovering it through Savile row even uh, the tailors even had um, wooden horses uh, for people to sit on when they were getting their riding britches made oh and, well. and the cut of the riding britches were on a special circle on some of them so that the seams were really comfortable nike and uh, the well, nike sorry levi were doing twisted jeans and i thought that the um, this cut of the uh, Levi's twisted jeans was just the same as riding breeches and yeah. nothing new about it. And then you think, hang on, how did they come about with these uh, solutions? And they were looking for um, ways to make the clothing more comfortable in different environments. And yeah, so I was discovering all that uh, form and function of clothes, especially with the military wear. And then other people, all the kind of ravers, were buying vintage tweeds because tweed lasts so well. So that was one of the few things you could always pick up in the charity shop. Yeah. Um, and enjoying the fact they're all dressed up um, looking elegant. And then there was another scene happening. There was a magazine called The Chap Magazine, which was also relishing this idea of looking like an old gentleman. But there was a lot of humour to it. Um, the idea is that you, were a, you weren't an out-of-work actor. You were a resting gentleman, and your partner oh. had, had his day off. That was the kind of humour of the whole thing. Uh, and so you were just in bed, and you had to uh, cook kippers in your Corby tr- trouser press. There were these funny articles about how yeah. to... Uh, uh, to survive without your butler. <laughs> it was It uh, was yeah I got a lot of irony and uh, and and humor in that scene, but that tied up with the tweed run, which is never, you know, it's not serious, but it was just a Sure, it yeah. Was the same kind of party
1: people. It was a, it it yeah. was a community too that yeah, was Yeah, yeah, it was a community really of like-minded people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cuz then then you're, you know, you're full-fledged brand. Like you are you're not a a guy who is excited by something and wanted to see a project through you're an actual brand and a business and now you have people buying fabrics that you and your partner designed like Uh, yeah well we had a few fabrics all in in anything i particularly wanted
2: at the time and i was inspired by kirsty then i spoke to kirsty and we kind of went over the fabrics there wasn't much rhyme or reason there wasn't a collection it was just a it was just a random um a random collection of fabrics that i was thinking of and the reflectives but then i was very keen on the marketing so i was using all my um contacts in photography to, to grow the brand and I had this friend of mine who I used to style with uh, on quintessentially magazine called kimvara balfour and she was very well connected an earl's daughter who kind of in that whole kind of scene that I was photographing in for right when I was working for country life and uh, those magazines um and she wrote for this um uh, online magazine called daily candy and she said if I write oh, about yeah. your new brand dashing Tweeds, you better be ready because the phone's never going to stop ringing so she I said right I'm ready um will you please write about me? So she wrote a little piece and nothing happened at all. (laughs) Um, But then literally about a month later, I was on holiday uh, and my phone rang and it was Converse, rang from Boston and they wanted to request samples because they'd read about it and they loved the idea of updating Tweed. Right. And um, so I sent them some samples thinking nothing of it. um, And then they called me up saying, we love what you're doing. Can we come and see your headquarters? We really want to do a collaboration with you. So that was the beginning of the brand really becoming serious.
1: Yeah, because you, I mean, you made what, like 30,000 pairs?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it was crazy. So they came over. They were staying in a smart hotel. I had a slightly bashed up Volvo, um, which I picked them up at and I could tell they weren't kind of quite sure what, and I was dressed in <laughs> this kind of uh, crazy colorful tweed suit, uh, which they liked, and picked them up in this old car and I said, "Well, we're going to our design studio. Kirsty lived in a uh, little terraced house with uh, some other people um, in the East End in um um oh, what's the area called um hackney and hackney yeah, yeah just yeah. past hackney um anyway um dalston in Dul- oh dalston yeah yeah. yeah yeah just was quite edgy at the time it's now totally like mainstream yeah it's kind of hipster <laughs> yeah yeah. so um so i took them there and they were pretty bemused when they just saw this little loom in Kirsty's front room but they they then they loved they loved it they saw the genuine passion Kirsty and i had um, yeah for the for the fabrics and then i drove them up to Scotland to see the mills and they realised there was proper production behind it. Yeah. At that time, we'd produced quite a few um, hundreds of metres of fabric and the mills were getting, getting happier to help us because they could see that it wasn't just a one-off thing. There was uh, near some longevity here. Yeah, um, yeah. so then, then they placed an order for... Um, actually, it was a bit of a process because they kept on testing us out with, smaller, with bigger and bigger amounts. But yeah, I ended up with 30,000 pairs of co-branded um, shoes, which is Converse, amazing. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. So I had that and the tweed run
1: um, people. And then you also collaborated with what every, at least in America, probably one of the biggest, most fashionable guys with, uh, with billionaire boys club. Yeah, absolutely. Pharrell. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Cause he was, um, uh, Nigu and Pharrell. They were, uh, Savile Row was really doing well at this time. Yeah. And I'd been helping to market Savile Row. Um, we were having so much fun. They were putting on these big shows. James Sherwood was putting on this London cut show. Everyone was suddenly noticing that Savile Row had a lot to offer. Um, I was attracting all these people, like the Billionaires Boys Club. Everyone was looking around things. And then I was there wearing my tweeds that the tailors had been ma- making. <laughs> and there were parties all the time. It was, uh, yeah, it was really exciting. So then they saw what I was doing. And I said, look, uh, it's very simple. That's the nice thing, I think, all along about dashing. It's just such a simple idea. I'm just saying, I'm modernizing classic tweed. Uh, yeah. Making it urban and uh, exploring color and texture. So you could say what the brand was about instantly. And they said, oh, I really like that idea. Um, can I see some of the fabrics? Can you develop something for us? So we developed some fabrics for them, and did a collaboration. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it was
1: huge. I remember yeah, yeah. seeing it.
2: Yeah, so that was that was really exciting. And then I thought, well, you know, the ball's starting to roll. I might as well open the shop. So I was looking around. There. I wanted to be close to all my friends in Savile Row. So I found this little uh, hairdresser that had gone bust, mm-hmm. tiny shop. And then, um, yeah, then. Uh, spoke to the landlords got a lease and moved into the shop thinking right this is really it i'm gonna fill it with all my tweeds make a few clothes and it's gonna be fantastic so I, m- I remember taking um i think it was a whole easter holiday or something everyone had gone away and i stayed on my own just to polish the floors and i was painting it all myself it was all oh, very wow. kind of yeah, um uh small scale and then created a Actually, I was really into making things uh, and welding at that time. That was a new new hobby. So I had a TIG welder I'd just bought. So I welded up this uh, hanging uh, sculpture with uh, welding up uh, stainless steel chains. So they all quite subtly welded. So it looked like they were just um, like Gaudi. They were making those curves that just would hang on their own, but upside down. So they looked quite magical and hung clothes off them. Oh my God. Although it, well, it did keep collapsing. It wasn't that well made, but it, uh, it, it looked quite impressive. So you. Create... Anyway, so I opened the door and then think, yeah. think, thought that um, that uh, since as as I have a shop with dashing tweezers written above it, then everyone would come in. And then nothing
1: happened at all. That was a real learning curve. So uh, wait. So what do you do when that happens? Because you're so positive, you're so happy, and it sounds like you definitely hit a wall a few times. I mean, what I, what told you to keep going? Yeah. yeah well, that was that uh, was quite depressing. So you opened the, you,
2: You've had a bit of success, uh, and you've got people buying your fabrics and then suddenly you've got this shop full of stuff and you're just actually growing up, I've always thrown parties. I just love having parties. And I remember, um, going to a friend's party. Actually, my party's always great success. Everyone turned up and they were fantastic. And then you have a taste for more of them. When we going once to a, to invite to a friend's party and there was no one there. And it was like the nightmare scenario. where oh. are all your friends? Uh, this is where, this is way, 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 way back at uh, sixth form at school. Um, and, um, and he said um, he wasn't the coolest kid, but a few weeks before um, his parents were away and all the cool kids said, let's go to this person's house, all the parents are away, let's have a, have a wild party. Right. He thought he'd try and repeat it and no one turned up and it was him. I was a friend of his. He was a bit of a science geek like me at the time. <laughs> um, and um, he was in tears. Anyway, he was obviously scarred for life. Yeah. But I found it um, quite scarring. So my worst nightmare was throwing a party and no one turning up. And then the shop was a bit like that, you know, you sort of open the door uh, to begin with and um no it was coming in so then i suddenly realized you've got to do so much more marketing um and yeah. get the message out to people before um before it makes sense sense for them i mean a few fans came in but um yeah that was a real learning curve and i'd just take it on this shop with a with a um minimum few years um uh rents to pay so yeah that was um that was a real moment of keeping keeping faith and then that's when Holly was, uh, appeared, she should appeared a bit before, um, to help me. And mm-hmm. she had this incredibly clear vision, just thinking,
1: right, what you need to do is have a proper plan.
2: Cause after, up until that time, I've been, been riding this wave.
1: Um, right. Reacting, yeah, excuse reaction. me, reacting to stuff over. It. Yeah, yeah.
2: Reacting to stuff, just going along with the ride. The whole of several row was on the up and I was part of the whole party. Cause I was creating all the images for it. Yeah. Um, and getting paid, uh, getting tailoring and, um, and I was selling some of the cloths I'd made. I'd done the Converse thing. And suddenly I had the shop and then no one turned up. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a real learning curve. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you started a podcast. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, that's what I needed, actually. And then also I'd run out of favors with all my friends who I would have been photographing for in the magazines because uh, um, when I'd been working for them, uh, they said, yeah, it's great that you're not doing so much commercial photography of magazines, but we'll run a little article for you. So yeah. I had... Um, I had the cover of the Sunday Times style, which was really great. Um, that's huge. Uh, yeah, which is huge. Yeah, which is huge. Um, and some other things, some other friends. And um, yeah, that, that, that had been and gone. So then I was left in my shop and I thought, my God, what's the next stage? Oh, my um, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the beginning of a, of a quite interesting time when uh, thinking about what is it you want the brand to become? Um, who are the customers? How many people like dressing up in crazy, colorful tweeds like me? Where are they? Who are they? You know, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting exercise when I mean, it's for anyone um, wanting to um, create a brand, um, thinking about who their customers are. Yeah. So, and I had, uh, hadn't really done that before. I'd just been thinking about what I wanted. Um, uh, so that was, uh, that was a whole, whole new process, really. So
1: w- what happened, and what was the the bigger turning point when that happens?
2: Um, well, it's still happening, and, and now we've got, now, now we've moved to a bigger shop, and we're just starting to do really well. So so it's easier to sort of talk about what's happening now. We've got an agent in Japan, um, which is fantastic. We've got two agents in Europe. Mm-hmm. We've been doing loads of um, got in with the uh, costume design world as well. So we've been doing stuff for lots of major uh, Disney and Warner Brothers films.
1: I think that's that's one of the. For me, like the most interesting things about your brand is when I think about, you know, in my mind, unfortunately, like the capital B brand is uh, that that makes clothes has a style, has a model, has a fit, has. But you're making fabrics which can be interpreted on upholstery. It can be interpreted for pillows. It can be interpreted. You know, clothing is is just one of the. Tons of other ways, and then how that clothing is made. have uh, yeah, I mean, too
2: fabric for different uh, purposes. I mean, I also was learning a lot about um, how fabrics produced because yeah. I don't really know about it. But there's different finishes required for different different uses. Okay, uh, so yeah, we have had, um, where well, we've covered our uh, furniture in the sh- in the shop uh, in our tweed. And it looks fantastic. Yeah, and we've done a few bespoke um, um, jobs for other. Um, uh, for, my brother has an architectural company which we've uh, worked with before, and then I was realizing. That the thing to do was to look for people, I mean, this sounds obvious, um, who actually like what we're doing rather than try and modify the brand that I was creating. Because the temptation when you're speaking to people and other business people sure. is to say your vision's a bit extreme or it's a bit too, you know, it's very exploratory. We love it. But why don't you tone it down and make it more commercial, which is, I, you know, which is diluting uh, the concept of what you're trying to do. Um, and there's a lot of temptation to, to try and drag you to the norm i mean that's yeah. what everyone tries to do is Just take you into the middle saying i really appreciate that you're you're at this sort of strange not strange but you know got kind of niche aspect um that you're exploring but uh, wouldn't it be better if you just did things in a more normal a normal way um and then you scratch your head and thinking oh maybe i should become more commercial so we tried for a couple of times just making some what we thought were more commercial cloths and no one um no one was interested in them and mm. then um I thought, that. let's just do things I really like, like this wild check coat.
1: Which is um, beautiful, by the yeah, yeah. way. Really, really beautiful. And, um,
2: and then we put that in the window, and then more and more people bought that. So you actually realise that if you stick to your guns, I mean, I'm no business guru, but it just seems to be, if you've got passion, and you can show it, and, um, and stick to it, then you'll find people. So that ended up selling really well, and then we ended up getting, as I was saying, men are like sheep. So um, there are very few, a few early adopters, but once the early adopters buy things and then Obviously, I was starting to, uh, social media really just started when I was starting with Savile Row. Mm. So, I was starting to explore all that social media and realizing all the old model of working with magazines and advertising was changing. Um, you start jumping on that bandwagon, and then you realize it's, yeah, it's a fantastic way of getting to these, these new markets. Yeah. But I do feel actually there's an interesting time at the moment, and men are looking around and thinking what is new, and uh, color was so popular. Uh, everyone's heard of Bo Brummel as being a, oh, yeah. as being a fantastic dandy. What people don't realize, his contribution was making men wear black and white. Um, it was all about getting immaculate cuts. Um, before that, men were wearing a lot more colors, and that was 200 years ago. So there's been 200 years of kind of color draining out of menswear. Obviously, there are peaks and troughs, but I think um, now it's quite an interesting time, and people they definitely notice that the uh, menswear show at Pity Womer went to. Last week uh, there's more color around so um, yeah so our exploration of color is, uh, is is now piquing people's interest
1: yeah, well, I think I mean thats that's also the thing too, in that people are right now we're in a, this this situation where everything is okay, no matter what it's just you need to be confident in what you're wearing, so you can dress any way you want, you can you know have one type one style suit or you can wear workwear you can wear italian tailoring or whatever that is it's just be confident in what you're doing and i think in a lot of ways that that you know mass validation has made it okay for people to explore because it's like oh look it's really more about my mindset of who i am and and what i believe in i can wear anything yeah, maybe but i'll it, try this
2: that is that is true but then throughout any creative process i've found that boundaries uh Actually, are the most helpful oh. uh, helpful thing because you've got a space to explore in. So when you've got no boundary and you can walk down the street in in you know ripped jeans and and uh, paint splattered t shirt, yeah, then um, it's harder for people to. And, and you can look at uh, heritage um, vintage things. You know, you get a lot of people dressed up in immaculate shirts and suits and ties, looking at they're from the Edwardian period. But then it's harder for people to. To because there's no boundary, for ah,
1: them. Um, they won't be able to understand you. Yeah,
2: yeah. To well, I mean, just personally, if you're just uh, thinking, what should I? What should be my style? Going back to when I was a young teenager, thinking what were my influences, and um, uh, it wasn't such a scruffy time, and everyone was people were still wearing. My grandmother was always saying that when she was um, younger, you couldn't leave the house without gloves and a hat, Um let alone know obviously everyone wearing pinstripe suits and bowler hats in the city. But in, even when I was growing up in the 70s, there was still more people wearing suits and more um, formal formal clothes. And now it's just got s- so informal, it's, uh, it is difficult for people to, to try and latch on to, to different trends, I think, because yeah. they don't have to. Um, whereas I think, I do feel when you're going out, if you're going to the opera or, and you see people who are badly dressed, it does ruin... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I, I the, agree with that. The sense of occasion. And I think if people are given by um, um, society, if they say, okay, you have to wear certain clothes um, to fit in, uh, then you can experiment with different cuts of jackets and suits. But I do think mm. it's, um, it gives people more confidence to experiment. And obviously, punk was pushing against the boundaries of, of the status quo at the time and, yeah. and creating something incredibly interesting, and they were using tweed to um, to be rebellious. Oh yeah, the uh, whole Vivian Westwood sex pistols. Yeah, Vivian Westwood, pistols exactly, and... because tweed was the most um, uh, conservative fabric worn by the sort of lords in the House of Lords, and so by by ripping um, uh, tweed up or putting it with zips and, and safety pins, they were being you know, um, as anarchic as they could, which is obviously the whole point of the sex pistols. But without the, the boundaries of the society, then it's quite hard to be anarchic, and now you haven't got the sort of boundaries of having to wear a hat and gloves and coats and um ties and everything outside It's you can't rebel anymore into being into being um you know less dressed, right um, um so so it's, so you don't see i went to this trade show yesterday when i was up here it was a streetwear thing there's nothing interesting it's just t- jeans and t-shirts there was <laughs> it wasn't like punk stuff or you know what i mean it wasn't anything right there, there was there was there was no statement I couldn't see any statements that people were having a passion going, yeah, let's be anarchic or... Oh, I'm sure yeah. many, are, many silently agree with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, or maybe anarchic is then dressing up in bow ties. And I mean, obviously that's a trend as well. Yeah. So I think it's in a way it's more difficult. So a whole bunch of dashing tweeds, we're giving people the framework in which to... Um, that's what I like to think. You know, you come to the shop, um, you see our styles. We're playing with tailoring, um, I've been working with students in the past um, doing things like very creative clothes based on 16th century armor. Um, I like to think of a kind of tweed hero at the tweed run times as being kind of modern day urban knight um, uh, on their bicycle instead of their horse. And then the tweed is some sort of armor. So you're looking at old armor and then using that to explore. So it's giving yourselves um, a kind of framework to work in. And now I've kind of, really enjoying the wide leg trousers. Yeah. The ones I'm wearing at the moment aren't very wide legs, but I've been doing these. Oh, things. I've seen you I've in far wide. legs. Wider yeah, yeah, legs. these really wide legs. Yeah. And then looking at um, um, history of wide leg trousers from the uh, sort of 20s when they first came in the Oxford bags and then the 70s. They go into year cycle, 50s. There was this uh, flare line suits in the 70s. So it's kind of interesting the ebbs and flows of fashion, but within the remit of tailoring, I found quite interesting because tailoring gives the... Um, uh, you know, the edge, the boundaries to explore, to explore in. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm interested in.
1: No, that's, that's in, fantastic. In doing that. Guy, I, I this has been, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation. And I mean, it's been great to hear about the retail store and then how, you know, so much of this birth. Um, w- as we're starting to wrap up, is there any other stuff you'd like to, to add or mention that we should plug or feature?
2: Oh yeah, we we'll definitely plug. We've got a fantastic shop in uh, Marylebone, just off Chilton Street, which is really good um we're doing uh collections twice a year so we've got a fabulous sp- spring summer collection out now um and um autumn winter collections we're constantly creating new collections we've now got a totally stock supported bunch of all our classic designs which we've created for the last 10 years which are selling really well um yeah so um my plug is just to come to the shop, and um, even if you don't think you may like what we're doing, just, just just come and have a look with an open mind.
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it is really, really beautiful stuff. Well, Guy, thank you, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you.
0: I right, talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, editing by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blammo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blammo and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Want even more Blammo? Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, our community slack, special events, and more. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.